Welcome to Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide. It's unofficial because I'm neither a credentialed academic nor a time-traveling medieval Norse pagan, but I deal with this material directly from the sources, interpreted through the lens of the experts and their opinions. If you're looking for depth and detail in a simple and accessible way, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide. Today, I'm really excited to have another interview episode, and today we have with us a man who has worked very hard to keep his anonymity on the internet, so we're going to allow him to do that. But you can trust me that I vetted him and he knows what he's talking about, especially on the topics that we're going to be talking about today. So I would like to introduce you all to a somewhat celebrity in the internet Norse mythology sphere. This is Adi Wadi, who moderates the r slash Norse subreddit. Adi, it's great to have you. How you doing? I'm glad to be here. Kind of cringe about uh, the celebrity. Ooh, mixed me tingle, but I'm excited to be on. Maybe minor celebrity is a better word. <laughs> I don't know, man. But uh, it's good to be here. Awesome. It's great to have you. So one of the things that I've noticed in reading through a lot of the stuff that you've posted online is that you are very, very interested in Saxo Grammaticus and his work Gesta Donorum. And I would love to ask you a few questions about specifically Saxo so that we can maybe start to uh, get our minds around who this guy is and what this book is that he's written. Because I think a lot of people are sort of scared to read Gesta Donorum. They don't really know what to do with it. So I'm hoping that maybe you can help break down for us what this thing is and and maybe help make it a little bit more approachable. Of course, let's do it. Awesome. So I guess just to kind of start off very, very basically, who was Saxo Grammaticus? Who is this guy? He has the coolest name, uh, but surely it it means something. Uh, But who was this guy? When did he live? And and what's he all about? Well, Saxo Grammaticus was a Danish historian living in the 1100s and early 12th century. Um, that's the same thing, I guess, 1200s. And he wrote this uh, story about Denmark's history called Gesta Danorum, which is like uh, this hybrid split between legendary history and true in citation marks history. And um, he was the first author. We, we know a lot of uh, legendary traditions and edict material from um, And he wrote in Latin, of course, which has earned, earned him the ire of, uh, of many commenters. <laughs> Yeah, um, he was a kind of a keyboard warrior. I would like to call him. He it's he was an aggressive man. Every reader who opens up the book will realize this because it's all about war and like manly virtues of the olden days and stuff like that. Right. So you know that's that's sorry uh, that's that's really an interesting point. I was reading a little bit of of Gesta de Norm, of course, in preparation for this, and of course, I was picking up on all the stuff you said. He's all about manly virtues and war and stuff, and yet he seems to be devoting all of his time to sitting in some library or something somewhere writing this thing, and he he spends a lot of time condemning people with sort of pampered lives and pampered professions who enjoy comforts and good food and stuff like that. Is that not the life that Saxo led himself? Um, it's, it's tough to answer. I, I would guess that his uh, views in Gesta Danorum are way exaggerated. It's like, I, I can't imagine him enjoying eating half rotten smoked food like his heroes does right. at all. <laughs> so, so I guess he is kind of a hypocrite in that fashion. But it's also virtues he, he lays out are also supposed to be like instruction to, to kings and warriors in Denmark to not let all those degenerate Germans get the better of them, but keep the heroic old ways. Right. So he he spends a lot of time bagging on stuff that comes from the Saxons in particular, which I thought was interesting. He mentions, uh, I think, some of the other groups in in uh, Western and Central Europe a little bit as well. Uh, but I noticed he likes to insult, what did he call it? Something like the voluptuousness of the Saxons or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, and it's because um, it's a recurrent theme in Danish history. Like we have to constantly assert that we are not Germans. We are not dependent on Germany. <laughs> right. And this was an an important goal in Saxo's time because the the first king of the dynasty he wrote about Valdemar the first he he accidentally swore fealty to the Germans. Kind of an embarrassing move. Uh, and there's also this constant struggle to mark the Danish church as dependent on Rome and not, as it had been earlier, dependent on the German uh, archbishopricks. So it was like, yeah, so it's a, a political goal that Saxo projects back backwards into time. That makes sense. So, okay, so why does Saxo write Gesta Danorum? As I, I understand just sort of the very basics, he's working for this bishop and he needs to write a history of the Danes. But what's what's the rest of that story? Because that's essentially all that I know about it. Yeah, as you say, he was commissioned by Absalon, the archbishop, to do it. And he says in his foreword that other nations had a habit of boasting of the deeds of their ancestors. Mm-hmm. And Absalon had always burned with this zeal for glorifying his fatherland. So he would not allow Denmark to go without a, a historical work of comparative status. And then Saxo goes on to claim that no one else had written uh, a history of Denmark, uh, which is a total lie, and he knew it was. <laughs> uh, but he did, <laughs> but he didn't uh, deign to name or even acknowledge these works. Um, and of course, they are none of them had the scope of Gesta Danorum. It seems like works that Saxo mentions, um, he w- he mentions like Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Paul the Deacon's History of the Lombards and a Dudu of St. Quentin's History of the Normans. Mm-hmm. And these are like all these massive national epics of established Christian Germanic nations. And I think Saxo, he, he endeavors to like construct this similar monument to the Danes that can compete with these works. And also, Europe remembered the Vikings and right. Europe knew where they had come from. And even though Denmark had been Christian for at least two centuries at this point, other European writers routinely described Danes and yeah, and other Nordic peoples as like coming from the ends of the earth, where the church was still fighting bitterly to stamp out pagan rites. Mm-hmm. And uh, Saxo's employer Absalon, he he was at the receiving end of this. <laughs> he had he received letters demanding reparations for Viking raids in France. Reminding him that since he was descended from these very same Vikings, it was only proper for him to like pay up. That is fascinating. Yeah, so a document like Gesta Danorum had immense value in placing Denmark within uh, the proper European context of other nations, while also establishing Denmark as an independent entity from Germany and Rome. Right. So it's it sort of has this these various purposes inside of it where. Saxo needs to make Denmark or the history of Denmark seem awesome for Archbishop Absalon. And also he has to include reasons for Denmark to be taken seriously as an independent country. And then also to be viewed as part of this Christian community of Europe. Correct? Exactly. And he does this by like constructing ancient Denmark, like as the counterpart to ancient Rome. Mm hmm. Which is, of course, like supremely megalomaniac, but but that's what he sets out to do. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, because he spends a lot of time in the beginning giving us these euhemerized stories about the gods, right? And that's and that's what I think is uh, going to be really a, a draw for a lot of people listening here is Saxo's take on you know the gods and Vikings and and people from the the Norse pagan era. Um, but he has he has a really interesting take on the gods. It's similar to some of the stuff that we see in the prologue to the Prosetta or in Heimskringla uh, by Snorri, right? But he's he's got his own spin on it. Uh, do you mind walking us through sort of how Saxo presents the Norse gods? Yeah, sure. As you say, it's like it's comparable to the Icelandic material where it, the Asia, they are like these ancient migrants from somewhere in southeastern Europe, Troy preferably. And 
Of course, they can't be real gods because there's only one god for these authors and it's the one of the capital G. So there must be something else. So these uh, wizards are conjurers of cheap tricks, really, um, migrate into the north and establish themselves as false gods, really. And it's the same basic story that Saxo uses. Um, he, he describes in this famous passage that there were two groups initially competing for the status of godhood. There were the giants and the wizards. And both could perform magical tricks, but the wizards won out in the end because they were smarter. Right. Then And then they produced a third uh, group, the offspring of the two, like a crossing. Two of them, which were neither as giant or as magically skilled as their predecessors. Right. And so the giants are interesting in Saxo as well because he's writing in the 1200s and it seems like at this point even though we we talk all the time about how in Norse mythology the giants aren't actually gigantic beings as a class but Saxo often describes them as being pretty gigantic right yes absolutely um, their size is the defining factor in the Saxo description and it's easy to tell he had this systemic description of them. All giants are giant. Um, but it's like in the Icelandic material, some giants are truly giant, but all giants in Gestadanorum giant. Right, and he even uses... Sorry, the Latin word he uses is uh, like gigantes, right? Or whatever that is in Latin, yeah. something like that. I'm, I'm drawing upon my Spanish and trying to reverse engineer a Latin word here. <laughs> <laughs> He does. Um, a gigas or gigantes. It has been used by um, learned authors in Europe since the 7th century to describe a variety of, of vernacular supernatural agents. So he's not unique in that regard. Mm-hmm. So I, I suppose if I was to read Gesta Danorum for the very first time as my very first introduction to any sort of Norse mythological material... And then later hear somebody tell me that giants are not giant in Norse mythology, I think I'd be very confused. Is this because Saxo is just sort of conflating ancient Norse traditions with what is kind of commonplace folkloric or mythological material across Europe? Is this something that is drawn from biblical inspiration or how how have giants become gigantic in Saxo's mind? Um, you left out the last option, which is all of the above. Ah. <laughs> it, <laughs> it really is a blend of like the vernacular giants who might be giants sometimes mm-hmm. in some stories. Every once in a while, you get a mocha coffee or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but then an every learned man in Europe at the time knew that at some point uh, in the like, most ancient past, there existed giants. And this is mentioned in the... Uh, in the Bible, actually. Mm-hmm. It's like a conflation of these two things and then giants in like classical sources. And it's, it's very typical of Saxo, really, this blend of native Scandinavian material and then Christian material and classical material. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. So that's, and to me, that's kind of the, the trickiest thing about reading Gesta Danorum is... I have a tendency to read something that sounds cool and think that I've just discovered upon some, just discovered some new pearl of wisdom about Norse mythology, but I always have to check myself and say, well, there's a good chance that Saxo is not necessarily giving me something original to pagan belief here. There's a much bigger chance that he's probably giving me some sort of more, uh, I don't know what's the right word, analogized Western European <laughs> version of thinking about things. Yeah, yes, uh, I, think, I think that's actually a bit of an unfair assessment because the most part of his material is, is just like reading any of the legendary sagas mm. from Iceland, like late, later periods. And in these sagas, giants are often giant as well and monstrous. But I, but I get what you're saying, like, you have to be aware of these textual layers and various traditions that Saxo used uh, very deftly to make his own work. Right, that's a great point. So, so whereas Gesta Danorum may be pretty different from Eddic poetry that we get in the 
Poetiketa, <laughs> for example, it's not too different from the sagas that are coming out of Iceland from around the same time. Oh, not at all. And uh, um, I mean, Saxo, his sources which will always be like a, a point of contention, but he, he probably knew about the same material as Snorri Sturluson did later on. Um, he was uh, we- very well informed because uh, the city he wrote in Lund in Denmark was like, it feels lame to say, but it's like a cosmopolitan area where you had like Icelanders and Norwegians and of course a lot of Danes and like this international milieu in which Saxo could find informants and find texts to draw upon. Mm-hmm. So do, I've, I've seen the question raised about whether or not Saxo had read works by Snorri or, and, and was influenced by them. Do you have an opinion on that? <laughs> I do. Um, it, it requires to uh, go into the dating of Gestadanorum, and he most likely begun had begun writing around year 1188. And the reason we know this is that another Danish historiographer, Sven Agesten, uh, wrote one of these uh, Danish royal histories that we we talked about before that Saxo didn't mention. Right. <laughs> Sven Sven mentioned Saxo. And he says that Absalon had informed him that Svend's colleague, Saxo, exerted himself for a long time writing a history of all of those kings in an elegant style. And Sven ended his uh, royal history in 1185, same year as Saxo, and finished uh, writing it not long after that. So that's like an estimate of when Saxo had begun writing. Mm-hmm. Then, and then the foreword to Gesta Danorum gives us a, a rough idea of when he finished it, because it was most likely the last section of Gesta Danorum that was recorded. Sure. And, and Absalon had died before Saxo finished, and so he dedicated it to his successor, Anna Sunnesen, who held the sea from 1201, I think it was. And he also dedicated it to King Valdemar II, who reigned from 1202. Far so good. And he also mentioned one of Valdemar's campaigns uh, in which he crossed the river Elbe. We know from other sources that Valdemar did so in 1208, and he would absolutely have done so. So we know he was writing around uh, 1188, finished his work probably not long after 1208. The prose editor is usually dated to close to 1220, maybe a decade later. The poetic era is from 1270, but might be a few decades older. So Saxo was, was first. Interesting. Okay, so I wonder then if it's possible that Snorri, assuming Snorri had anything to do with the prose <laughs> I, I it, it makes me wonder if, if Snorri had read anything by Saxo. So the reason I, I mention this is because I think you and I talked one time about how there are these two stanzas of a poem about Northern Skadi that show up both in the Prosetta and in Gesta Danorm. And it's just those same two stanzas. And it would seem like the simple fact that it's just those two in both cases would mean that either both of these authors were drawing on the same prior material or that one of them was influenced by the other. Uh, um, some scholars ha- have been cheeky and suggested that Snorri might have read Saxo but nothing really suggests that that Snorri knew Latin, really, and Isatanorum is a very complicated text. Um, but it's true that those two stanzas uh, appear in both texts, and to my mind, there is no there is no question if Saxo had a manuscript in front of him when working with these two. And I think there's like this broader question of of the Eddic material circulating, when when did it begin, really? it I think it must have been circulating in text form already by Saxo's time. That makes sense. So what are some other things, I guess, that people should keep in mind as they begin to read Gesta Danorum? And I should mention as well that it's... I've mentioned before on the show that it's this great big multi-volume work, and it is, but it's also not difficult to approach in terms of readability. If you if you read the uh, the Carson Fries Jensen and Peter Fisher version, for example, it's very simple language, easy to approach, easy to comprehend. Lots mm. of great stories about 
you know, people getting sliced in half or fighting dragons or, you know, men punching women in the face, you know, crazy things like (laughs) that, that we, that we don't see a lot in modern popular media, right. Or unless it's designed to shock us. And so, but, you know, I, I mentioned that, uh, I, I have kind of this mindset that I try to keep in mind. And then you mentioned it wasn't necessarily a fair comparison, which I think is great. So what is the right mindset to have for, let's say somebody kind of newer at this approaching guest to Norm for the first time? Um, well, I think people should just read the thing, the first eight or nine books or so mm-hmm. will probably be the most appealing. It's the legendary materials with heroes and dragons and gods and whatnot, and just be entertained really, because when you just read it as is, it, it doesn't differ at all from legendary sagas, which are the best sagas in my opinion. But as you start to like, if you want to deeper into it, you have to realize that Saxo, he, he has a plan. It's a complicated plan and crazy plan even, but but all levels of Gesta Danorum are planned out. So we can take the first book, for example, the first king, Dan, or Dan, whatever, um, <laughs> he's chosen to be king because of his, his fortitude, which is, of course, a classical virtue that Saxo repeatedly pounds upon. Every King, book one, is all about fortitude. Mm-hmm. Then book two starts the dragon slaying. What are dragons? They are greedy. Right. So this is a book about generosity, really, because you can't be a king, a prince, or any person with status in Denmark, in Iceland, wherever, if you, <laughs> if you don't want to pay up. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's a theme that we see already from Tychitus, right? That there are all these great Germanic leaders and they give all their wealth to their followers as they should be doing. Right. It's a, it, that theme carries throughout everything. We see that in uh, Grimness Mall, for example. Um, it shows up. Yeah, it shows up in pretty much anything with a king. Either he's good because he's generous or he's bad because he's not. Exactly. And he keeps building upon all these virtues and contrasting them with good kings, bad kings, good counselors. Very important because he spends a lot of time uh, like heroizing Absalon as Valdemar's counselor. Mm-hmm. Gets, pretty, <laughs> gets pretty ludicrous at times. <laughs> so there are all these themes. That you got to get does. paid, he, you know. He like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's pretty, pretty ridiculous. Right. But there are all these things and themes that he constantly brings up. And then there's also the case of the composition of Gista Danorum, because it's split up into 16 books, which is an, not a truly odd number, but odd in the sense that it's unusual. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with the primarily with the uh, Aeneid of uh, Virgil, because he has also, he, I think he has 12 books. And in book six, Aeneas goes into the underworld and receives the prophecy that will define Rome as a nation right. for all time. Right. And then we have in book eight, for example, in Gestadanorum, well, what do you know? An underworld journey heralding the coming of Christianity. Wow. <laughs> the coincidence. Right, right. <laughs> right, right. So there is a plan. Like the first four books are like the history of Denmark before the birth of Christ. In books five to eight, it's like it's Denmark after birth, the birth of Christ, and then the establishment of the Danish Church is the first third quarter, and the establishment of the Danish Archbishopric is the last quarter. Gotcha. It's a book with the plan. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned a, a minute ago a few scholars being cheeky in proposing some things. I'd be interested to know what are some of the most common misconceptions, not only that maybe regular people have about Gesta Dunorum, but even that you've seen in the scholarly community. Well, the major uh, misconception is that Saxo was this, he, he hated the Nordic pagan gods, mm-hmm. and I don't think he did at all. He reserves you you humoristic spot for them like like we talked about they are wizards not true gods and this is what all all authors do in the north but they are not demons which is the other uh, path he could have chosen Saxon knew about demons and knew about 
demological tropes and how to to write them. And he uses those tropes to characterize the, the gods of the Slavs, who the Danes, Danes uh, conquered in, in Saxo's time. Interesting. So if he had if he had been really adverse to the Norse gods, he would have probably applied those same types of demon tropes to them as well. But instead, he sets them up as these, even though they may be wizards and, like you said, conjurers of tricks at times, they're not demons. They are heroic figures in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's of course, a complicated exposition, but even though they are ultimately, like, fallible unmen, uh, really, it, he doesn't hate them. And even, like, for he he receives no criticism at all by Saxo. And even Odin, who is, like, a very ambiguous figure in Gestata Notum, he, at, in Book 8, he's mentioned as always having fostered the Danes with, like, a fatherly affection. Mm-hmm. And Odin has also instructed and a lot of Danish kings and giving them knowledge, right? So it's a very complicated exposition of the of the pagan gods. But at the same time, pagan gods and giants and whatever, they have a tendency in Gistadanorum to appear outside of Denmark. And the Danes have this tendency to kill minor gods. Right. <laughs> so... Right, so it's complicated, but it's not the like the frothing at the mouth madness that some scholars believe. Right, he's got he's got to be true to his Christianity, I imagine, and he doesn't want to start looking like too much of a paganism fanboy. But at the same time, he really could have gone a lot worse than he did with with the Norse gods. Exactly, and it sounds apologetic, and maybe it is, but I think he couldn't he couldn't criticize the pagan gods too much because they've they were like the native pantheon, really. Right. So it's it's interesting. One of the things that I've tried really hard to wrap my head around is where these gods live in the mindset of your average uh, Scandinavian Christian in the late 1100s, early 1200s. Obviously, they've they have been Christian for two centuries ish. Well, at least in Iceland, they have in Denmark even even longer. Does the public at large at this point have kind of a euhemeristic idea of the gods, or is that something that's just circling in educated groups? Are the gods still showing up a lot in folklore? I, I'm interested in sort of understanding what the average person's mind was like in terms of how they perceived. The ancient belief system. Uh, I wish I knew the, the answer. Oh. <laughs> I think a lot of one of those <laughs> difficult questions. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of scholars would also very much like to know the answer because the humoristic model is, of course, a learned theory mm-hmm. that circulates within the utmost strata of society. I don't think any peasants, uh, farmers, fishermen, whatever, would know about this at all. But at the same time, folklore would still be alive. You know, you have mentions of the Christian gods circulating in folklore in like the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Of course, it, it must have existed then, but we don't know in what form at all. Yeah, that's interesting and sad all at the same time. But you know what's, what's, yeah, interesting, <laughs> what's interesting too about Saxo and the position that he takes? Because there there seems to be, as I read it, Lots of sort of competing ideas all the time. Like it's like a pendulum that kind of swings to one side in one moment and then swings back to the other side in another moment. You know, he he wants to he wants to glorify the Danish fatherland, for example, and yet at the same time he'll use things like calling his Danish ancestors barbarians versus the quote intelligent Romans, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, but the barbarian thing, I think it's because he is a learned man of the church. He has to wag his fingers and say, you got fooled by the pagan wizards. You are so, so, so stupid. Right. <laughs> um, but, but, as, but as for how he uses barbarians, besides for the ancient things, then he uses it for, for the Baltic peoples and the Slavs. You know, people at the fringe of civilization, that's, they are like prime candidates for, for receiving the business end of a sort. Right. right? And Saxo has a, a lot of people who are prime candidates for receiving the business end of a sword. Uh, you and I were... It's a long list. Yeah, you and I were talking about 
the the story of Starcother as it appears in Gestadonorum, and this is maybe something that a lot of people will be interested in because Starcother, of course, he's the famous hero from Gautrek's saga, which is very famous. He shows up in a lot of places in Norse mythology. And Saxo has the longest Starcother story you will find anywhere. I mean, page upon page upon page of Starcother, which he calls Starcotherus, I guess, in Latin. Um, but he's he seems to be, you know, kind of this shining example of what a man should be in Saxo's mind, right? And it's all about class structure, and it's all about living in moderation, and it's all about preferring war and the basic things in life as opposed to comforts and opulence and stuff like that. And it makes me wonder how much of, of these virtues that he imposes on a character like Starkother, how many of those are these classical virtues that you mentioned and, and how, how much does that compete with what might have been pre-Christian virtues at the time when Starkother, assuming he was a real person would have really lived. Well, it's kind of he's kind of an interesting figure in that Starkatheris. He's like this pagan turbinator that's blessed by Odin and cursed by Thor. Right. Always speaking speaking in poetry, and he's like just killing machine. And it's kind of art an art choice for Saxo to really like. But he is a fan, I think. And I think he might have seen something of himself in Starkatheris, at least in the way he himself presented him. So that's an easy self-insert to make. Sure. But in this constant criticizing of weak, decadent kings who that the Germans influenced them too much. But it's kind of hard to really decide if Stargatherer's ethical code is like Saxo's work, or if it's something that was there all along, and then maybe Saxo expanded upon it, which I think he did. Because... Mm-hmm. Stark Atherus, he, he hates the commoners in all sorts. It's, it's, what, it's what he does. He's, he's an aristocratic killing machine. Right. Uh, blessed by a mad god. Unless you're a he farmer, right? If you're like a that. farmer, that's respectable because you don't earn anything for yeah. what you've worked for. Yeah. Good, honest work and not tradesmen, not goldsmiths, not foreigners, not slaves. Right. Oh, that was something fascinating, too. He Star, is, or Starkather slash Saxo is completely fine with blacksmithing. But goldsmithing, it's just, you know, some, some <laughs> loser thing to do. <laughs> right? Yeah, decadent and useless. <laughs> but, but that is also informed by some passage that we, that we don't know today in, in which Stargatherus gets his ass kicked by blacksmiths. Right. <laughs> and, they, and they earn his respect that way. It's like, oh, you're good enough. You kicked my ass. Really showed me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well he he does take that attitude because there's um there's the moment where oh who is it? Is it is it King Ingyald who he he breaks into his bedroom but his wife has has told him Starkather's probably going to try to kill you but if you just stab him first then he'll think that you're manly and he'll stop trying to kill you. And it and it works, right? Doesn't he he's he stabs Starkather right in the forehead or something. And then Starkather is like, oh, all right, you're you're manly enough. Okay, I guess you don't deserve to die after all. Yeah, it's a great story. It's not Inkel. I think it's it's a Helgi. Or so, oh, or that's someone. right. It was. It was Helgi. He's supposed to show up to these, this massive duel against like a band of berserks, but he he sleeps in his bed, and Starkather actually goes to wake him up, but sees him in the embrace of his lover, wife, or whatever it is, and he decides that he, he won't wake him up, so he goes himself to the duel and waits in the middle of the winter and just sits uh, on this hill covered in snow, like something out of The Shining, and then, like, casually massacres these other dudes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and gets this previous wound where, he, where his guts are hanging out of his stomach or something. And then he goes back to the, the chamber... And then the episode uh, you just described happens. Right, right. And he's like, oh, uh, you were a tough dude after all. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you would have been tough if I decided to wake you up. But that, that is really interesting. You're right. I remember <laughs> that because he, he goes to wake him up. And I think, I think that, that Helgi and his wife were newly married. And he didn't want to break up what seemed like such a, a nice moment <laughs> between the two of them who were brand new married or something like that. 
But then, it, yeah, it causes exactly. him to get his his gut sliced open, and he. I love that part because he he crawls over to a stream to try and get a drink of water with his with his intestines hanging out. But then he sees that the water's been contaminated by some blood, so he's like, "I'm just not going to drink it." And then all the, and then <laughs> in a scene that's almost like reminds me of the Good Samaritan story from the New Testament. A few different people mm. come by and see him laying there. But in this case, everyone offers to help and he's refusing help from everybody because of their station in life. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an amazing story. And I feel like anybody who, anybody, anybody who wants to write a book about Vikings, for example, because we see this online a lot, right? People ask all kinds of questions because they want to write a story about Vikings. They want to write a book about Vikings. I think anybody who wants to get attitudes of manliness that that show up with regard to these types of heroes in the sources ought to read the Starkotherus story from Gesta Donorum because everything is about how Starkother thinks about something in its relationship to whether or not it's something a man should be doing or not and he takes action based on that almost exclusively throughout the whole thing yeah and it's so over the top all of the time yeah, like like I mentioned, he punches he he punches a princess in the face because she's because she's about to sleep with a goldsmith. <laughs> <laughs> Devil teacher. Yeah, <laughs> she'll yeah never gonna make that mistake again. <laughs> yeah, but but this is the do- the sister of the king whose feast he interrupts and turns into a massacre. Right, because again, because he's right, so. he's mad because all the food is too too nice. Right. And the queen is trying to give him unmanly gifts like she just doesn't get it. Right. She like she tries to give him. I think it's like her own her own golden crown or something like that. And and he he, I think he throws two different things back in her face that she tries to give him in that story because they're (laughs) both unmanly gifts that he shouldn't have. And he's mad about them. Oh, and that's right. And he and they try to appease him by having a musician play. And he just throws he throws a bone musician and hits him in the face, and then the musician starts crying. And Saxo's like, and and thus we see that when you live a life of comfort, you become a crybaby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But the whole story is that Ingjald has failed to avenge the killing of his father and instead married into the family of uh, of his father's killers. So and dedicated life to like sloth and avarice and greed and all these German luxuries. Mm-hmm. The the luxurious life he, he sort of equates with being being effeminate as a man. Yeah, the neat part is that Saxo uses the same wording and like scene to describe the effeminate and decadent habits of Svend the Third, I think he was, one of the kings competing for the throne of Denmark in Saxo's own time. So Stark Atherus Saxo are like mirror images of the same extremely harsh critic of this feminine and foreign influence on weak kings. And it's a thing you see constantly in Gestatonorum where the ancient past is a mirror or like a foreboding incidence of what will come to pass later in the historical period of Denmark's history. Interesting. So would it be fair to say that it's almost like Saxo is making critiques of things that are going on within royalty at his time by the way he writes about the past. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. And I, I, I guess I don't know if that's the sort of thing that would put a guy like Saxo at risk, but it uh, seems, well, I mean, I guess if all your Kings are weak, <laughs> you're not too scared of them. <laughs> well, the King he criticized was like the main competitor for the throne of Denmark. So in criticizing him, he says, the, the current dynasty of Denmark, they're the good guys. The competitors, decadent, effeminate, German. Right. Right. And that's that's interesting um, because so he, so Saxo, he he really likes to kind of put this manly focus on on the historical Danes. But he will mm-hmm. take other Germanic groups, like you've been mentioning the Germans and call them effeminate. But another one that he mentions, again, this is in the Starkather story, I read it recently, as you can probably tell, uh, is uh, is he criticizes the people that he calls the sons of Fre in Sweden uh, for being mm. too effeminate. And in this case, in this case, he doesn't like actors on the stage. He doesn't like tinkling bells and he doesn't like 
I recall correctly, what he what Saxo calls womanish body movements. But in this case, mm. it's mm. it's yeah. Swedes. And I remember uh, this was an instant instance that Gunnell uses to point out how the idea of Freyer worship was considered kind of this other thing. Like it wouldn't have been as normal in Iceland and Denmark. It would have been this thing more coming out of Sweden. Um, and whether or not that's the case is, is another thing, but it's, it's interesting that, that Saxo is taking other groups that I think a lot of times when we look back on Norse history, sort of as a monolith, we think that these guys all sort of consider themselves the same in some way, all these Germanic groups, but at least by this point in time, they're, they're really starting to solidify into their own identities to the point that, that Saxo is willing to call everybody else effeminate <laughs> except for, you know, great Danes. <laughs> Yeah, um, the the thing is that Swedes in Uftgistadnorum and Icelandic literature have this chation of being like backwater sea pagan hicks, really. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why you find all of these weird references to their cult, because they were the last uh, nation to convert to Christianity. Right. So, yeah, so they had like this special connected to them. But also... Um, a thing that also plays into that description is that for some reason, entertainers like minstrels or jugglers or whatever were universally hated by Scandinavian authors. Jugglers were ha- universally hated? <laughs> yeah. And it's also why the, that guy who got a bone in his face is like a, a big crybaby. And you find this uh, other places in Gestadanotum too. It's like this intense mistrust and critique of this new mode of entertainment probably because it comes from courtly courtly milieus in like germany and england and also because they etched out the the native um, entertainment cultural capital uh, like scalds for example yeah it's interesting because right after starkather throws a bone at, at this guy whose job is to play music on a on a flute and a and a harp I think he might have been doing both or something like that but he he immediately gets up and he starts insulting everybody through verse right and and uh, Saxo well at least in the English translation the word they use is song so he's he's mad at this guy for putting on music and then he immediately gets up and starts <laughs> reciting song slash poetry. And so, you know, it's it's interesting how the distinction is drawn between those two things. It is. Um, Scalds didn't see themselves as belonging to the same group as these minstrels and jugglers and whatnot. Because people, I guess you can call them like carnies to use an American term. Sure. Like, the yeah, they just travel around and just do some entertainment for a while and then take off and leave. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's important to note that that Stark Atherus is a scald too. So, so he, yeah, he's he, a he's a freestyler. He just he he comes up with it right on the spot, just insult after insult. One of Odin's blessings. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, okay, actually, so let's we're starting to run out of time here, but I wanted to jump back to the question of Odin a little bit in Gestadunorum. So. There is there are two instances in Gestadunorum where Odin gets exiled. The first happens because he voluntarily goes into exile, I think, after Frigg cheats on him. And then the second one is right after he has disguised himself as a medicine woman in order to get close enough to Rinder to take advantage of her and then father... Um, anyways... It, to give birth to a son, which will come back to me right after we're done talking. Um, but anyways, so he he goes into exile this time because he's forced into it because of the womanish things he did during that trick. Not necessarily because he did anything bad to render herself, but because he dressed up like a woman to do it. And then yeah. there is there is another instance in Heimskringla where we get Frigg uh, sleeping with Odin's two brothers while he's gone for a long time. It doesn't necessarily say, well, it doesn't say that he's been exiled there. Um, but what's interesting is there, there seems to be this idea. And I think doesn't, doesn't this also show up in 
Locusena at one point. There's a, a reference to Frigg sleeping with Odin's brothers at one point, I believe, that Loki mentions. It does, it does. But I guess, I guess this idea of Odin being exiled and sort of disappearing for a long time and maybe this having something to do with his wife's infidelity, do you have any, any thoughts or opinions on whether or not this is drawn from a, a lost myth or whether or not I'm just sort of you know, putting too many little pieces together from euhemeristic works? No, I think you are definitely on the right track. Um, in Heimskringla, it's the saga called Ynglingasaga, as you say, and, and that saga, we know it postdates Saxo, so he can't have used that. But it does occur in Lokasena, as you say, the, that Frick has been engaging in adultery. This is one exile we also find in Gestetanorum, or one reason for exile. Mm-hmm. But I know you have talked a lot about uh, a lot about the Rind story in your podcast. And do you recall the name that Odin assumes when he carries out this shameful deed? Yes, it was uh, in Gesta Danorum, it's Wecha. W-E-C-H-A is the way is the anglicized version of that. I forget what it looks like in the Latin. Exactly. But I think there is something interesting going on because this ad- adulterous episode is known from Locasena. Mm-hmm. And... We also know from Locasena that Odin, he appeared in the guise of a, a witchy or whatever, the same word that you discussed. So I think that the, the exiles in Gift of the Norm both points towards Locasena as some kind of source. Right. Because the reasons for the exiles are found there down to word level description. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting that I, I don't believe there's any mention of an exile that comes from anything that's reasonably pre-christian is that true yeah it's true um and we, we might also note that situation in gestatanorum and ynglinga saga it, it looks alike right the reason for the exile and the, the even the mentioning of exile in general right yeah it's it continues to sadden me that so much material has been lost although it's also Amazing how much material has been retained when you think about it as well. It's an amazing stroke of luck that we know anything, basically. Yeah, you know, I, I read I read Gesta Danorum, and one of the things that I've been sort of starting to dip my feet more into as well is Celtic mythology, and I've, I've started in the Irish side of things. Uh, and all we have in terms of Celtic mythology, outside of just some obscure archaeological finds are euhemerized works written by monks and it's and it's hard to know who in here would have been a god sometimes versus just a hero of legend you know and it, and it's and it's really interesting and it it makes me think that Norse mythology might have been similar if we had only ended up with let's say you know Heimskringla, Gestida Norum, stuff like that and we we hadn't been lucky enough to have somebody decide that they needed to spend all this time and money writing down these ancient pagan poems that had been passed down for a couple hundred years. Also, luckily, right? Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's it's a wonder, really. And we are we are lucky, as you say, to have something that doesn't that isn't packed into like this weird interpretational frame that we just have poetry, really. Yeah. And the, the poetry is is some amazing stuff, too. I We could get into that for another hour if we wanted to, but I think we're probably about out of time. I guess before we, before we wrap up here, um, one of my hopes has been that this episode and some of the other stories, you know, I, I did an episode on the Rinder story, for example. Uh, my hope has been to inspire more people to read because even though I admittedly have not read every word of the entire thing, <laughs> what I what I have read, especially the stuff that's in the first few books, where you know you, we're dealing with some of the legendary heroes that show up in sagas, and we're dealing with characters that are gods and other material, is is really fascinating stuff. And even if it is euhemeristic, mm. and even though there is some influence from the classical tradition coming out of Greece and and Rome and you know sort of the the courtly tradition of of the later medieval period there's also just a lot of really cool insight into the types of things 
that at least people in Saxo's time would have thought to be characteristic of the pagan period. And they're at least closer than we are, right? So I guess I, I would encourage everybody to, to pick this up and read it. Don't let it be this thing that is scary and scholarly that you only hear podcasters and YouTubers talk about. And I guess if you have any other points you'd like to, points of encouragement to throw out for people to read Gesta Danorum, uh, now would be the time. Yeah, I think people should just read the first nine books and be entertained. It's their fun stories. Like it's it's what you think of when you think of Viking sagas, like crazy duels, dragons, pagan gods, daring Viking raids, and all the good stuff. And I also think that you should pirate. Oxford edition. You can't afford it. It's too expensive. <laughs> it's not priced from. I don't say this to imply anything, but it's that. not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's but not priced for mortals. <laughs> it's not priced for mortals. You don't read the the crusty old nineteenth uh, century translation. Get the new one and don't pay for it. Be an internet Viking. <laughs> All right, and there, there you have it from somebody who's maintaining more anonymity than me. <laughs> Something that I cannot endorse, but one potential way you could physically get a copy, or I guess digitally get a copy of Gesta.norm. But you're right, it's it's wonderful, and my my recommendation, of course, I believe is is the same as yours. It's the it's the Jensen and Fisher edition, uh, which I believe is 2015, if memory serves. So it's it's not too old. Um, once again, I, I appreciate you uh, coming on and, and talking about your your specialty. I always enjoy reading the the comments and the posts you make. Oh, you also you have a a blog that you've recently started with a, a few posts on there specifically about Gesta Danorum. Uh, do you want to plug that in case people are interested in kind of dipping their toes in the water a little bit? Yeah, it's history of the Danes.blogspot.com. And it's like it's a mix between obscure deep dives into Gestadanorum and just me being angry at other scholars. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes it so so much more enjoyable, in my opinion. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Anyways, I guess I keep thanking you, but just to sign off here once again, thank you, Adiwadi, so much for coming on, and I hope that you will entertain the idea of maybe coming back on again to talk more in the future. Definitely. It has been a pleasure. All right. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time on Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide.